higher levels of everyday discrimination leads to higher rates of inflammation in the blood and higher levels of inflammation puts individuals at risk for a broad range of health conditions. There comes a tipping point in all campaigns when the evidence is overwhelming and the only way to proceed is with action. According to David Williams, the expert on social influences on health, it's time to tackle the disproportionate effects of race on patients in the UK. It was David's Everyday Discrimination Scale that, in 1997, launched a new scientific approach to assessing social influences such as racism on health. He's shown that people who experience everyday acts of discrimination, like getting poorer service in a bank or a restaurant, or being treated with less courtesy, will over time have worse health outcomes, including higher rates of heart disease, lower life expectancy, and greater infant mortality. I'm Lillian Anekwe, new scientist, assistant news editor, and a health journalist. And I spoke to David about the science behind the health effects of racism. Uh, you're a professor of African-American studies and public health. And I'm interested to hear which one of those came first and then how did one lead to the other? So um, my, I, I have an undergraduate degree in religion. I have master's degrees in public health and a doctoral degree in sociology. So I have always been interested in making a difference uh, in the lives of others. And after my training in public health, I worked uh, from, from a, at a hospital uh, doing um, health education. I was in charge of um, developing programs to improve the health of employees at the hospital, but that might have been 10% of my time. 90% of my time was developing programs to address um, health and wellness in the community. That, that hospital had had a tradition of doing that kind of work uh, for some time. And it was um, part of doing that work, working at a hospital in Battle Creek, Michigan, um, looking at the challenges of health and trying to do things to uh, improve health, help people understand the things they could do to improve their health, whether that was quitting smoking, managing stress, reducing the risk for cardiovascular disease, improving blood pressure management, um, and so on. I, I got convinced that I, I needed more expertise, um, that um, the challenges that people face were not simply about knowing the facts. It was also about what else was going on in their lives. And so I, I moved to the University of Michigan and did a doctorate in sociology, um, specializing in studying um, the contribution of social and psychological factors that affect health. Um, and th the study of social and psychological factors that affect health has characterized my work. I started as a faculty at Yale University, got promoted from an assistant to associate professor there, um, then went back to University of Michigan as a faculty for 14 years, and I've been at Harvard since 2006. So um, my broad range of, of interests is really understanding health and understanding how the social context is shaped in health. Part of that includes um, work on, on race and health, and, and because of my work on race and health, uh, when I was coming to Harvard, the chair of the African and African American Studies Department insisted that I needed to have an appointment in, in his department, um, and it made sense. I, I feel tot perfectly comfortable. We cannot understand race and health if we don't understand the role of race and racism within the larger society and within our world. So it, it is a part of, of, of my interests and, and the work that I do. And what's the focus of your research now? Um, that's a good question. At any moment in time, I'm working on with colleagues on 25 different papers or so <laughs> at any moment in time. So we have research going on in, in multiple domains. I would say one overarching theme of some of my research is the impact of stress and health. Um, so I'm doing work with a colleague looking at early childhood adversity 
and, and the stresses in the lives of, of parents with children age, uh, from birth through age five and trying to think of how do we best capture distress in the lives of those parents and, and then identify what are the biological consequences uh, for their children. I'm also directing another research project that is looking at the, the, the recent presidential election in the United States and the hostility and stress that that has generated and the impact that may have had on birth outcomes for vulnerable women. We're thinking of, of uh, uh, persons living in the United States but from the Middle East uh, as well as racial ethnic minorities. Do we see changes in birth outcomes? We've th- we're not innovating, uh, doing innovation in this area of work. There, there was prior research showing, for example, that in the wake of September 11th uh, in 2001, there was increased harassment and discrimination directed towards Arab Americans in the U.S. And a study done in the state of California documented that during this period of intense hostility, Arab American women were more likely to give birth to low birth weight infants and infants who were born preterm in the six months after September 11th compared to the six months before. So the study didn't actually measure the stress, but it looked before and after the, the inception of, of increased hostility and documented health effects. So that's, that's another area of my interest. But more broadly, I'm interested in, in thinking of what the resources are that are protective of health. I do work looking at religious involvement and, and its, its protective role, potentially protective role. And I'm also continuing to do work on racial discrimination and racism and its effects on health. Okay, so picking up on that last research area of interest to yours, your work in the past has focused on the nexus of health and ethnicity. Can you tell us in what way ethnicity is a social determinant of health? Well, it is not ethnicity per se, but it's the meaning of ethnicity in a particular society and how the the things that uh, correlate with ethnicity have health consequences. Let, let me give you some context. When my career started, most researchers thought that racial differences in health were simply a function of racial differences in socioeconomic status. Um, if we look at data for the uni- United States, blacks and other disadvantaged racial ethnic minorities have lower levels of education than whites, have lower levels of income than whites, have, have lower levels of wealth than whites, ha- on average um, have lower levels of occupational status than whites. So the thought was that the racial differences in health were driven by these racial differences in socioeconomic status or social class. And that, therefore, if we looked at blacks and whites, for example, at the same level of income and education, race would no longer matter. Um, Let me just illustrate this with U.S. data. If we look at life expectancy at age 25, at age 25, how long will the average person live? The average white person in America lives five years longer at age 25 than the average black person. So that's the racial gap in health. However... When we look in within the white population, whites with a college degree or, or more education live 6.4 years longer than whites who have not finished high school. That's a gap by education bigger than the racial gap. And within the black population, uh, African Americans or blacks, I use those terms interchangeably, with a college degree live 5.3 years longer than blacks who have not finished high school. So we see powerful effects of socioeconomic status as measured by education or income within each race. At the same time, at every level of socioeconomic status, race still matters. So white high school dropouts live 3.2 years longer than black high school dropouts, and that difference gets larger as education increases, so there's a 4.3-year difference in life expectancy among college-educated Uh, uh, blacks compared to college-educated whites. And what we find in national data for the United States, a stunning statistic that the best-off blacks, those with a college degree or more education, have lower life expectancy than whites with a college degree, lower life expectancy than whites with some college, lower life expectancy than whites who have finished high school. 
So these data clearly say there is something about income and education that drive health, regardless of your race. But there's something else about race that matters and matters profoundly for health, even after you've taken income and education into account. And one of the things I have been doing for the last 20, 25 years was working with a group of other researchers trying to understand what else is it about race and how does the racism in the larger society have consequences that have negative effects on health. Okay. So this has been the focus of your research, as you said, for 20, 25 years now. Why should other people worry about the fact that these differences exist between white people and black and ethnic minority patients? Why essentially is this a problem for everybody? That's a really great question. It is a problem for everybody because, first of all, um, these inequities violate some core beliefs that all of us in the civilized world have. We believe in equity. We believe in giving everyone um, equal opportunities to be successful. People have to put the effort into it, but at least the opportunity, the playing field should be level in terms of access to opportunity. So that's, that's, it's, it's one of the core values that British society has. I grew up in a British colony, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's one of the core values that, that British society has, that American society has, so that I, I think we need to make those opportunities real. But even more to the point, what the research shows is that when people don't have access to equality and don't have access to enjoy the health that is potentially possible in our society, all of us pay. It is costly. So in the United States, for example, research has documented that the racial gaps in health cost the U.S. economy $312 billion a year. And Part of that is the higher costs of treating illness of populations who are vulnerable and have higher rates of disease. But the biggest contributor to that cost is lost productivity. You are looking at individuals in the prime of life, in their most productive years of life, and they are not functioning and contributing to the economy as they should because of premature disease, because of premature death, uh, because of being able to work but not at their full capacity. So, so that is costly, and that is costly for all of us, economically costly. You, your work has highlighted the effects of racism on physiology and health outcomes, and I'd like to explore that more on the, the impact that racism has on the actual biology of patients from minority ethnic backgrounds. How does it affect things like their blood pressure, their cholesterol level, their cortisol levels? Can, we, can you explain what the link is and what we should do about it? Sure. So um, one of the things I said is that I have had a long-standing interest in stress. And when I was doing my doctoral degree, I worked with researchers who were looking at the negative impacts of the stress of unemployment. Um, one of my mentors did a lot of work on occupational stress and stress at work. And my work I see on discrimination on health, on self-reported discrimination on health, is one way to measure the stressful experiences that being discriminated against has on the physiological functioning of individuals. So it's just, there is a large body of work on stress and health that tells us a, lot, a broad range of psychosocial stresses have negative effects on health. What I have done is documented that experiences of discrimination are one type of stressful life experience that just like other types of stressful life experiences negatively affect health. We, but we know scientifically what the pathways are. We know that when someone experiences 
stressful experience, a stressful experience, a stressful incident. It, it leads to negative emotions. They feel bad about themselves. And these negative emotions can lead to underlying physiological uh, processes um, that, that adversely impacts their mental and emotional well-being but that will also raise their blood pressure and, and lead to increases in inflammation and leads to what researchers have documented as the stress response. Um, and so these, these are well-documented patterns, and what we are seeing, the same things happen um, for, for the stress of discrimination. One of the things um, uh, that is even surprising to me is how powerful the effects of the stress of discrimination is. I developed a number of measures that are used, widely used now, to assess discrimination, not just in the United States, but globally. Um, and one of the measures uh, is called the Everyday Discrimination Scale. It captures little day-to-day -day indignities. You are treated with less courtesy and respect than other people. You receive poorer service than others at restaurants or stores. People act as if they think you are not smart. People act as if they uh, are afraid of you. Those little indignities. Just let me illustrate what uh, some of the research findings. Higher levels of everyday discrimination leads to more rapid development of coronary artery disease when people, adults, are followed over five, five years. Higher levels of everyday discrimination leads to higher rates of inflammation in the blood, and higher levels of inflammation puts individuals at risk for a broad range of health conditions. Higher levels of discrimination leads to higher levels of blood pressure. Um, elderly persons who report higher levels of discrimination, everyday discrimination, report deduct experience more rapid declines in cognitive function over time. A study of adults followed over time, higher levels of discrimination, everyday discrimination, is an independent predictor of premature death. It's literally killing people prematurely. A study of pregnant women find that those who report high levels of everyday discrimination give birth to lower birth weight infants. Uh, a study of African-American and white women finds higher levels of everyday discrimination has a dose-response relationship to visceral fat. Visceral fat is the bad type of abdominal fat that is in between the internal organs and that predicts higher risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and so on. So just this is an example of the kinds of evidence that documents that discrimination adversely impacts health. Moreover, we now have studies from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and the United States that shows that when we look at racial differences in health, adjusted for income and education, and there still is a residual effect of race, that is in part explained when we consider experiences of discrimination. So we now know from a statistical, empirical point of view that discrimination is one of the reasons why there are racial disparities in health. Wow. Well, this special issue is very much focused on the impact that racism has on health outcomes and what can be done within the health system and by the medical medical profession to address that but it seems like from what you said the impact on patients it's almost something that patients should be made aware of how do you feel that patients should feel about it should they worry about it should there be some anger some outrage how do you how do you think that this message should be should be told to patients all of us in civilized society should have some outrage that there are we are living in a context where some people are treated unfairly, some people are treated differently, some people receive inequitable treatment just based on who they are. Um, and but I, I want to say something else very important. I got interested in in this work because I was interested in racial discrimination. But the measures I develop capture all types of discrimination. I ask people if they've been unfairly treated in different ways, and at the end, after they've endorsed them, I ask them, what do you think was the main reason? So we can get 
discrimination based on sexual orientation, based on gender, based on age, based on religion, um, based on social class. And what the research finds is that it doesn't matter what type, what source, uh, or the reason for the discrimination, any type of unfair treatment has negative effects on health. So, for example, even in the research that we have done in the U.S. and elsewhere, white, the white population also reports uh, discrimination because they are treated badly because of their gender or their ethnic their specific white ethnic background compared to others, and the effects on health are the same irrespective of who reports them. Moreover, there is some recent research that suggests that people who endorse multiple sources of discrimination, I'm treated badly because of my race, because of my gender, because of my sexual orientation, then we see a dose-response relationship as well between the number of types of discrimination individuals experience and the negative effects on health. So, so the, the, partly what I'm saying is the problem of, of treating individuals differently may be inherent to the human condition, but we need to rise above these natural human tendencies and really treat everyone with the, the dignity and respect that they deserve. So should we let people be aware of this evidence? Yes. The good news is the research also documents that there are resources that reduce the negative effects of discrimination on health, at least some of the negative effects of interpersonal discrimination on health. So, for example, uh, research finds that, that individuals who are embedded in, in supportive social networks, that the quality of social relationships can reduce some of the negative effects. There's some research that finds that uh, individuals who have high levels of religious engagement and involvement, that can reduce some of the negative effects of exposure to interpersonal discrimination on health. There's other research that finds that some psychological resources like optimism um, um, can also reduce some of the negative effects. So, so there are resources that matter at the individual level. At the same time, I think the bigger challenge for us as a society is what can we do within our organizational and institutional environments to create a climate of psychological safety, to create a climate in which we reduce incivility so that we, we, we set the tone and really create an environment that it affirms and is supportive of everyone. Do you see that we're moving towards that type of environment? And what's the biggest change you've seen whilst you've been researching this area in outcomes and in the approach to how we deal with the inequality in outcomes? I would say there is increasing recognition and increasing acceptance that discrimination exists and that it matters. When I and others started this work uh, some time ago, I, I have been told by reviewers, you know, the, the publication process, you write a scientific paper, you submit it for review. Uh, we don't know who the reviewers are, but I was told by a reviewer um, in a social science journal that the term racism does not belong in a scientific paper, that racism is an ideological concept that cannot be measured. So I, I'm saying when we began this work, we were working in an environment where even scientists believed that this was something that could not be measured, that could not be assessed, that this was inappropriate, this was irrelevant, that this was more ideological than scientific. Um, so I, I think in the early days it was really working hard to document using the tools of science that these are realities that can be assessed, that can be measured reliably, and, and that predicted not only self-reported indicators of health, but measured indicators of biological functioning. So I think we are now getting to a point where the, the, the crescendo of, of the work of this research from around the world is such that it cannot be ignored. I, I want to give you one example of, of the power of discrimination. There was a study done by a researcher in, in the state of Georgia where he studied um, uh, African-American teenagers at age 16, 17, and 18. And at each of those ages, he measured the discrimination that they experienced. And then at age 20, 
he measured multiple indicators of their biological uh, functioning. He looked at the stress hormone levels um, in their urine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, um, cortisol. He looked at their systolic and diastolic blood pressure. He looked at the level of inflammation in their blood. Uh, he looked at their blood pressure. And what he found, that those youth who experienced high levels of discrimination consistently at age 16, 17, and 18, by age 20, I didn't say age 40, I didn't say age 30, by age 20, they had higher levels of the stress hormones and higher levels of inflammation and higher levels of blood pressure and higher levels of obesity. So we are seeing systemic biological dysregulation experienced that early in life linked to exposure to discrimination as a teen. It's, it's just, the, the point is, th this is a big problem that is uh, impacting on the health of individuals uh, beginning at a very young age. There are studies documenting the negative effects of discrimination on persons even younger than their teens. And so this is a, an important societal problem that we need to address. Part of the beginnings of the conversation of how to address this in the UK starts off with, I think, things like this special issue, sh highlighting these questions. Are there green shoots on health outcomes and ethnicity that you have seen in the UK from your perspective and in the US? And do you think that if there are green shoots that you've seen in the US that they could transfer and scale up in the UK? Um. There are some positive things that have happened. I, I tend to look at the glass as half full um, as opposed to half empty. Um, but any way you look at it, we have a long way to go in both the U.S. and the U.K. Um, we, we know that there is evidence that we can understand. Uh, we haven't even talked about implicit bias. I've talked about the effects of interpersonal discrimination. But there is a discrimination that also exists that many providers are unaware of in terms of how they treat patients who come from uh, black and ethnic minority backgrounds. And there isn't a lot of work on this in the UK. There's a lot more in the US, primarily because a person's race and ethnicity is in the medical record. And in the US, many of the early studies came from a review of medical records. I'll give you an example of one. Uh, a, a researcher at the University of California, Los Angeles Medical Center, asked a simple question. When a patient comes into the emergency room with a long bone fracture, that's medical speak for a broken bone in the arm or legs, does the ethnicity of the patient determine whether the patient gets pain medication or not? What they were able to do was to go back for an entire year and look at every person who had been treated in, in the emergency department or casualty, as you would call it, um, over the, the prior year and look to see on the chart, did that person get pain medication? And they found that over 56% of Hispanic patients, as persons of a Spanish background, had received no pain medication compared to about 25% of whites. And the researcher was a good researcher. He said it could be something else. So he statistically controlled for what time the patient showed up at the emergency department, how long they spent in the emergency department, what language they spoke, where did they get injured, um, how severe was the fracture, did they get hospitalized, and after statistically adjusting for every other possible explanation, the single biggest predictor was whether the patient was Hispanic or not in terms of receiving pain medication. And I, I give that example of pain medication, but that pattern has been documented in the United States uh, across virtually every area of medical treatment. Blacks and other minorities receive poorer quality care and less intensive care. And if you ask the average provider in the United States, do you treat patients differently based on their race? They would overwhelmingly tell you, absolutely not. They treat everybody the same. They try to provide the same quality of care to every single patient. 
but the evidence is overwhelming. There was a landmark report in the United States released in 2003 called Unequal Treatment. It was the report that was done because the United States Congress voted to ask the National Academy of Medicine to conduct a review of the evidence because there had been an influential scientific paper published where researchers had gone to a medical convention, showed um, the physicians uh, videotapes of patients describing their symptoms. The symptoms were, were the patients were all actors, quote unquote patients were actors. They described their symptoms with identical language, even trained to have the same facial expression as they described the symptoms, yet there were systematic differences by race and by uh, sex in how, uh, what providers would recommend as the appropriate treatment given the symptoms. And so we know that's overwhelming. In the UK, we haven't even gotten to that issue yet of to what extent is there differential treatment. We believe that a large part of this is driven by implicit bias. It's driven by unconscious um, uh, negative stereotypes that providers have, just like other members of society has, that affects the quality of care and affects how they relate to a patient. The good news is there is evidence of interventions that we can implement to reduce uh, the the level of implicit bias in the general population and in providers. The bad news is you can only begin to go down this path by recognizing this could be me. And the average provider tends to say, I would never do that. I would never treat um, patient, uh, patients differently based on their ethnic background. One of the things I tell my students when I talk to them about implicit bias and prejudice, I tell them that I think of myself as a prejudiced person. And I think of myself as a prejudiced person because I think of myself as a normal human being. And I say, if you are a normal human being, you are most likely prejudiced. I'm not saying you are racially prejudiced um, because race is only one basis of group categorization and implicit bias in our society. But every culture, every community, every society has in-groups and out-groups, groups that are viewed positively and groups that are viewed negatively. And all of us are products of our socialization, products of the messages we received implicitly and explicitly in part of our, of our growing up, of being raised in a particular society. And all of us have these embedded biases that shape our behavior in ways that we are often not even aware of. If we assume that we are in a place here in the UK, in the healthcare system, where we're able to be frank and be honest and say that there is uh, an issue with implicit bias that may be affecting how patients are treated by medical professionals. What kinds of interventions that you mentioned are there that are out there that could possibly redress that problem and have they been shown to work? Is there evidence that they are effective? There's actually a study from the UK <laughs> that shows that you can um, uh, give uh, healthcare providers uh, a, a drug, a pharmacologic agent, a beta blocker that reduces implicit bias for the next couple hours. It works. I mean, this was a randomized controlled trial in the UK that showed you can eliminate implicit bias uh, from providers by giving them a pharmacologic agent. That's actually an important study because there are people in our society who tend to dismiss implicit bias as fake news, as not real, as, as a liberal concoction to, 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 to distort reality. The fact that you can intervene on it with a pharmacologic agent in certain areas of the brain documents that this is a real phenomenon that exists uh, that can be measured and that can actually be, in, be intervened on and, and be disrupted through pharmacological treatment. I've, I, I've I'm never not heard... suggesting... Hmm? I've never heard of that before, and I think that's fascinating. Can, can you tell us can a bit more about the and, and give it to you? I don't know it off the top of my head, but it's actually a British study. I use it in talks I give. It's actually right. a British study, elegantly done, randomized, controlled, double placebo, controlled design. And were um, they able to say anything about why 
that would work, the mechanism or how it, how it works? No, no, no. That's exactly. We know what the mechanisms are in the brain. And if you intervene on those mechanisms, you, you reduce um, the, these processes from working. And, and, and my point is, this is, these are normal brain processes of how all of us as human beings process information. We process information by putting things into categories. That's how we navigate the complex cognitive information we are bombarded with every day. The issue is if one of those social categories are categories that we hold negative beliefs, negative stereotypes about based on our socialization, we will treat person or thing that belongs to that category differently. We will discriminate, and it's an unconscious process, and it's an automatic process, and it occurs even among persons who are not consciously prejudiced. So it, it, that's why I say it's. I think of myself as a normal human being, and, and I, therefore I think of myself as a potentially prejudiced person. I may not be racially prejudiced, but what may be my categorical beliefs about fat people about gay people, about old people, about women. So these processes are not just about race. And raising awareness levels is not just about helping to, to take care of black and ethnic minority people. It's helping to take care of all of our patients because race ethnicity is only one source of social stigmatization within our culture and our society. If it's as easy as taking a beta blocker then to reduce implicit bias, why isn't everybody doing that? Why isn't it just the magic pill that will cure all of these problems? Well, I don't know that it is a practical or desirable thing that we would have the entire population of providers. But remember, this is, doesn't occur only in medicine, so we would ha need to have the whole society. We would need to add this to the water supply and we medicate the entire population on an ongoing, long-term basis, I, I don't know that that is a, a viable or, or practical solution. Um, I think it is a, a striking study because it illustrates that it can be done and, and that there are fundamental biological processes in the brain that can be intervened on and that can have these positive effects. The good news is there is, um, I, I sometimes call it in my lectures, the divine um, solution. Uh, uh, Professor Patricia Devine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison has um, put together in a single program a number of psychological strategies that have been shown in experimental studies to reduce implicit bias. These are strategies like um, individuation. Now, all human beings normally process cognitive information by social categorization. We put things into categories, and research shows in our societies, for example, when we meet someone, the three things we, 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 we notice about them in one-third of the time it takes to blink our eye. So faster than the twinkle of an eye, we note their age, we note their sex, and we note their race. And depending on what stereotypes are deeply embedded in our minds about those social categories, we will then treat them based on that, again, in one-third of the time it takes to blink our eye. That's how rapid these processes are. So social categorization is normal. Individuation says it takes time, it takes conscious effort, that I will resist the temptation to categorize people when I meet them based on the social categories to which they belong. And I will try to understand this person as an individual and try to understand who this person is and how they think and where they are coming from as an individual. That takes time, it takes commitment, it takes effort. But that's an example of one strategy that works, individuation instead of social categorization. Another strategy that works is what's called counter-stereotype imaging. If I think of all women as weak, then one of the things I could do at night before I fall asleep is just imagine what a strong woman would look like and just picture in my mind 
uh, women as strong and, and a strong woman engaging in, in certain activities that to me is, is a symbolic uh, of strength. And that's counter-stereotype image, and that's an example of another study. So th those are just examples. There are multiple psychological strategies, but all of them take time, uh, take commitment, and, and begin with the, the, the provider, the individual has to begin with the realization, this could be me. I could be treating individuals differently based on the social categories to which they belong. Do you think that the use of technologies like AI, artificial intelligence, which are supposed to remove the element of bias and generate decisions which cut out the kind of human influence and the bias and the baggage that a human being would bring to making a clinical decision. Do you think that the increase in the use of those kinds of technologies could be a way of redressing that balance? Or do you have concerns about the data that is used to build the algorithms that then feed into AI? i be honest with you. I have not carefully looked at the impact of artificial intelligence in this context, so I would be a little leery to make any kind of major pronouncements. I would say that if we go back to the National Academy of Medicine report released in the United States called Unequal Treatment, published in 2003, I, by the way, I served as a member of that committee, one of the recommendations that was made is that if we could encourage healthcare providers to use what we call uh, standard practice guidelines. They're guidelines of how you should treat everyone with, with this particular condition, and you ensure that you follow that. That, that is, uh, We didn't have evidence that it reduced <laughs> these biases, but it, it makes logical sense that it would. If, if you, you really are following a script that you would follow with everyone, it, it is reasonable. So that, that was one of the recommendations. So I, I do think that there is potential um, for for approaches like that to have positive effects, I really haven't seen a lot of empirical studies that have looked at at the impact, and I I do worry uh, uh, as you noted in the question uh, as to what's the data being fed into to the algorithms and 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 what's the appropriate type of care. There is a long history in medicine, e even in the United States today. The average healthcare provider will tell you, if I know the race of a patient who has high blood pressure, it tells me what type of antihypertensive medication I should use. And if you drill down and look, as some research has done, the basis uh, for these judgments, there is some small average differences in the response of patients to different classes of blood pressure medication on the one hand. On the other hand, there's three to four times as much variation within each race than, than between races, so that literally knowing a patient's race doesn't provide much guidance to a clinician as to what they should do, but they should be sensitive to the fact that medications might work differently across an individual patient and try to ensure that they personalize to that person instead of the broad social category to which that person belongs. So there, there is potential danger there, but but I, I don't really know enough to, to talk authoritatively. Okay. And in my research when I was looking into this, it I got the impression that there was much more research that and data that came out of the US and some other other countries that you mentioned, New Zealand, Australia, and not so much data on inequalities in healthcare and health outcomes coming out of the UK. Is that the impression that you have? It's not just an impression, it's the reality that I have looked at because I, I look carefully. I, I come to the UK quite often. I, I work with the Workforce Race Equality uh, Standard. Um, Ackley will be speaking at the King's Fund in November um, uh, for something else. Um, and so I have been looking for data on race and health in the UK. There is some uh, to the extent that we find data in the UK, the patterns are similar to those in the US, but you are absolutely correct. There has been less focus um, and there's been less research 
done, so we don't have as much evidence. But I would say the patterns we find of racial inequities in health, the patterns we find, the work of, of James Nasru and his group, um, looking at discrimination and its negative effects on health, they are replicating the same findings that we have found in, in, in the U.S. So yes, the, the similarities across contexts are quite striking. Do you think that there would be value in establishing a health observatory or a body that looks across the system, reports to health leaders and policymakers on the disproportionate effects that race has on health and the issues that you've talked about? Oh, absolutely. I I think the workforce race equality standard is a good step in that direction. It looks at um, a a number of dimensions uh, of race equality, um, but it hasn't yet gotten into, or, or, or there's no initiative in, in the UK that has gotten into, to what extent are there racial ethnic differences in how providers treat their patients? That, that is still uh, a Pandora's box in the UK in terms of, of really having um, research that addresses that question. Right. NHS England says the next phase of the workforce race equality standard is to work to change the deep-rooted cultures of race inequality in the system, learn more about the importance of equity to build capacity and capability to work with race. And do you think that that is and should be the next stage for this programme or would you like to see it move in a different direction? No, that, that is th- th- those are very valuable um, very key commitments that are necessary. Uh, if we will change the realities on the ground, we have to change our organizational structures. We have to change the larger environments within everyone works uh, within the NHS. So that's the right goal. The trick is, the important issue is, what is the commitment to accomplishing it? We know from research that has been done in the U.S., there are key factors that predict success. Um, There are lots of companies and organizations over the years that have produced wonderful documents and wonderful statements um, that have not had an impact on the ground in terms of the reality. So we know that some of the keys to success begins with leadership, that there is, in fact, a true commitment on the part of leadership and leadership talks about it and clearly articulates that this is a value and this is a priority for the organization. Two, the the rhetoric must be matched by behavior, must be matched by policies, must be matched by actions. And so the leadership now needs to put in place uh, people, organizational structures, and policies that have teeth and that have the authority to to implement and to change the reality. And related to that, um, if we look at some of the most successful uh, programs in the U.S., are programs where there was money, leadership put their money where their mouth was, so they provided new sources of revenue to to make these programs a reality. So it, it does take commitment. It does take deliberate, concerted action to change an organizational culture to make a difference. And also, what advice would you give to a young black or minority ethnic doctor here in the UK about what to be aware of, maybe how to change the system and how to approach patients as they're going through training and working in the NHS? Um. I think one of the good things is that we need more <laughs> minority doctors. I'll tell you a statistic for the United States. In 2014 in the U.S., there were fewer black males in the first year of medical school than in 1978. In the 1960s, um, just over 2% of doctors in America were black, And in 2014, just 3.9% of doctors in America are black. So has there been progress? The the denominator of doctors has changed. So these, I'm giving you the percentages. So the the number has changed. But as a proportion, we have made progress, but precious little progress. There is so much more. Just for comparison, 
the affirmative action programs implemented in the United States were much more successful among women. In the mid-1960s, only 6% of medical school graduates in the United States were female. Today, 50% are female. So the programs designed to increase women and minorities worked a lot better for women. Why? Because women were prepared to walk through the doors of opportunity when they were open. So it's not enough to open the doors of opportunity. We need to think of what we do with what we call in the U.S. pipeline programs. How do we help students from elementary school and high school, how do we prepare them to be academically successful so they can take advantage of the doors of opportunity that are open? And then when those young providers can come into that space, that they have the commitment and support, I think support is is key. I was on a panel earlier today, and I talked about what helped me to be successful. During my first year in my doctoral program in the United States, I was studying at the University of Michigan. In my field, it was one of the top three departments, so it was a little intimidating to be in, in that that program where you know everybody there is really good and you begin to question yourself as whether you really belong and whether you will really be be successful. And one of the things I talked about was what you would call all of the BME students in my cohort. We were a small proportion of the entire group, but we banded together. I, I can't remember how it started, but we banded together and called ourselves the family. And our motto was, no one is going to fall through the cracks. And we were a supportive network and a support system. And we would study for our statistics courses and our quantitative methods courses together, which would take a lot of our time. And, and we were a supportive network uh, to help us survive. And, and yes, I, I did well. And, and, and many of the others within my cohort also did well. And I, I think those kinds of support resources and mechanisms that you realize that you are not alone, but you're part of a larger group. And, and your experience is not just about you. It's a universal experience of people who share your background and characteristics. Those, those support resources would be one of the things I would say to a BME doctor to link yourself with other persons who can be supportive of you. Let me also say that my primary advisor in my doctoral program was white. Um, and so there are... Uh, and he was a gem. Most of the students that he supported were either disadvantaged minorities or women. Um, and it, it, it reflected the heart and character that he had to really make a difference in terms of social inequalities that existed uh, for the lives of others. So we need to work. It's not just about your, the, your shade of skin color. It's about the values you have and the commitment you make, and all of us can work together to make a difference for the lives of others. Professor Williams, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. The article that I've written about the health effects of racial discrimination is now online. This is part of a BMJ special issue about the interplay between racism and health. I'm Lillian Anekwe, Thanks for listening.